SCP-001, Mamjul and Karar, Part 3. Mamjul turned out to be quite the dead end from an academic perspective. The architecture was pretty, the glowing algae was cool, and the stone-like wood was impressive, but ultimately the Foundation didn't learn a whole lot from the sunken city. Now, however, thanks to the continually useful Lord Blackwood, the team has managed to astrally project themselves into Momjul's sister city, Karar, which is still alive and thriving. What's more, the city's ruler is not only letting them into the city, but welcomes them with open arms. If there ever was an opportunity to learn about what exactly happened thousands of years ago, this is it. To paraphrase a popular movie quote, however, Deva and man, two species separated by thousands of years, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? Let's continue. Before we get back into the events at Mamjul and Karar, we're given another section of verses from Davic scripture. It reads, as witnessed by Saudi Velatra, third Rajmata of the Scarlet Maharaja. And as the empires spread across the face of the continent in the name of the Scarlet House of the Deva, it was soon that they came to know those that had arisen in the east and west in the thousand years of isolation. The blood-mad Nalka of Black Aditum, the great dark necropolis born of Mamjul's own sin and rent from the body of the High Slave, took arms against the Deva in their zealotry to extinguish the life from the flesh. And the Mechanites of Amaniram, in their arrogance and disdain for the natural laws of the world, took arms against the Deva in their zealotry to make themselves more than human. And in the hopes of saving their people, the Covenant took the magic of the jungle against their aggressors and waged whole war, war in every aspect, war in every element. Mamjul and Karar turned from peaceful metropoli to cities of war, and the children of the Scarlet rushed out into the land, sorcerer nawabs leading vast legions of deva, and warriors and slave soldiers into the cruelest faces of humanity. Of the north of the deva, once lay a dozen cities, now reduced to naught but ash and rubble over the course of the First War. The zealots of metal saw and learned the power of fire and lime, wielded freely against innocence, entire forests burned into cinders to deny the deva their home. Cities laid siege to, men bled, Fulad melted down into the very spears that would be driven through the bodies of the Mechanites and into the wall of Mamjul as a warning. And of the Nalka was an even more violent confrontation, for their lord Ion was a hateful beast, and his mindless forces ran amok, stretching wildly from the east and raising those who died in war back again, denying their souls their eternal rest in Karar. Their massacres were devoid of purpose, killing for the sake of killing, with no artistry to their butchery, 
No respect for the inborn soul, only a simple-minded desire for the purity of rent flesh, empty vessels. The cities of the Nalka were torn from the ground by the great vines of the sorcerer Nawabs, sundering walls, laying waste to all who dared to interrupt the dance of the soul. And through all this, the three cities lay unaware of the wretch of the West, of its horde coming together, of the Black Star rising from the obscurity of a farming village to the head of the army of the damned. In our arrogance, we saw only each other. We dismissed the fourth, who had been silently scheming for a thousand years, a vengeant eye watching the horizon, watching the rise of Amani Ram and Mamjul and Karar and Black Aditum, and casting a specter of devastation upon the land as it made the slow, agonizing march to the great golden walls of the Gate of the West, with only one thought in the mind of its prophet, death. Let's continue then with another remote meeting between Dr. Galanis and the O5 Council, this time with only five of them in attendance, along with Lieutenant Greaves. Galanis asks where the rest of the council is, as they were hoping to brief everyone at once. O5-1 replies that it's pretty rare for them all to be able to attend a meeting, but they'll make sure everyone is updated. Galanis begins by explaining that three weeks ago, they conducted the first astral projection test as part of the Mumjul Karar initiative. They weren't really aiming for anything in particular, but just like how they stumbled into Mumjul, they also stumbled into Karar. Unlike Mamjul, however, Karar is not only alive, but thriving. The subsequent return trips have panned out very well, and they've been in repeated contact with the Deva. They've made some frankly astonishing inroads into developing an understanding of their culture, and their linguists have even constructed a preliminary model of the Davic language. They don't really need it though, as they're able to communicate perfectly fine on the astral plane, and their anthropologists are busy interviewing and compiling the research. 053 asks if they're on good terms with their queen, the Rajmata, and Galanis replies that yes, they are, and they've been leading all the return trips and getting the other personnel acquainted with the process of projection, with the help of Blackwood. 053 remarks that the idea that the entire Deva race has continued to exist for 3,000 years in isolation boggles the mind. Galanis explains that the astral plane is a reality constructed entirely of dreaming minds, and they haven't really been able to construct a scientific basis for it yet. 057 says that it's all a bit mumbo-jumbo to him but 051 says that they've all seen stranger things than this, and asks Galanis their opinion. Galanis says that it's a hard question to answer, but they have things now that they didn't have before, notably direction, and a primary source to get more knowledge from. The Rajmata has been really helpful with their researchers, mapping out the districts of the city, explaining parts of her people's culture and how the Deva think, Honestly, Galanis thinks that this is a breakthrough, on the same scale as the discovery of the Preserver entity in Amani Ram, if not bigger. Galanis isn't saying that there aren't risks, but the risks are worth taking. 
They all agreed that they need what the Deva have, and there's an entire culture waiting for them to learn about it. History, anthropology, music, literature, and that's not even considering the kind of thaumaturgy they're capable of. 053 replies that that's the sort of thing they need to be more focused on. The humanities are important, but they're in Karar for one reason. Galanis sighs and says that they can't try to understand what they're capable of without understanding what kind of a culture leads to that. It's like trying to understand American military technology without knowing anything about the US. 053 says that that may be true, but he notices that they haven't made much progress with determining the ultimate fate of the city, to which Galanis says that the Deva are hesitant to share info about that. 051 says that they've read the reports over the past few weeks and heard the testimonies of the research team, along with Alpha 1's reports, but this project has entered into a realm a money rom never did, quite literally. Their only exposure to Karar, to the existing Deva, is through the device inside of Grieve's brain. They are now fully in uncharted territory, and there are dangers that they likely don't even know about yet. There has been a not insignificant push to have the initiative cancelled, all personnel amnesticized, and the records sealed. Galanis yells out that they can't do that but 051 replies that they know that he can, but he's not going to, because he's a historian too. He still thinks that Mamjul and Karar hold incredible possibilities for the Foundation and for humanity, knowledge that they need now more than ever. Because of that, they're going to be offering new resources, more personnel, and more support. Galanis asks what the catch is. And 051 replies that going forward, 05 Command is going to be more involved in the initiative, and Lieutenant Greaves will act with their authority, empowered to make executive decisions. Galanis tries to argue, but then asks to speak with 051 in private, so he dismisses Greaves, and asks if Galanis doesn't trust Greaves. Galanis says that it's not that, but they don't know how useful more oversight is going to be, as it's a little stifling. The researchers keep coming with complaints about the Alpha-1 operators impeding their work, and it's bad for morale. Galanis doesn't think that Greaves has the best interests of the initiative. 051 suggests that Galanis speak to him to see if the security can be integrated into their workflow better. The O5s chose Galanis to be in charge of this project and it's within Galanis's right to speak to Greaves if there's an issue. His team is there for their own protection, and in the last 12 years of employment, he's never known Greaves to be anything less than perfectly reasonable and deeply loyal. Galanis has been given a chance, so they should extend the same courtesy to others. Before Galanis departs, 051 says that Director Actis was being crude, but he's right. They trusted the Preserver, and that ruined them, so they should keep a close eye on the Rajmata. The realization that the Davic Covenant was not in fact an extinct civilization caused a sudden shock to the personnel of the Mamjul Karar Initiative. In the three weeks after the first astral visit, 16 return trips were made by the Dream Team, 
which had been expanded from 9 individuals to 35. This was largely due to the Psychotronics Division successfully producing RL-023, an animotropic drug that considerably lessened the preparation and training needed to astrally project, while also allowing for perfect recall after awakening. The subsequent visits after the first one included personnel from every division of the initiative, and were focused on a number of immediate goals. First was to ascertain the anomalous capabilities of the extant Davic Empire and their current nature of existence. Second was to establish diplomatic relations, if possible. Third was to arrive at a clearer understanding of the Davic culture, and lastly to build a unified timeline of the Empire's fall, along with establishing the identity of the entity, group, or party known as the Abominate. The Rajmata, the current ruling monarch of the Deva, proved to be exceptionally receptive to diplomatic efforts, and was accommodating to Foundation personnel in Karar. Thanks to the assistance of the Rajmata, the Anthropology Division was able to compile an extensive culture briefing after multiple visits to Karar. We're going to be provided with several excerpts from this culture briefing, the first of which is about their societal structure, and reads, The Davic Covenant Society is extremely rigidly caste-based, with roles in society occupied by dozens of complex, interrelated castes. Broadly, they can be grouped into four categories. As with many ancient cultures, slaves occupy the bottommost rung of society, and are afforded few rights or luxuries. The Davic Empire made extensive use of slaves in almost every line of work that could not be done through their aboromancy, from construction, to agriculture, to bureaucracy. We estimate that the Empire contained three slaves for every free citizen. This system was brutally enforced through both anomalous and mundane control methods and violence. Testimonies from the Deva indicate that the mass killing of slaves was regarded as a kindness, as it freed their immortal souls to join the population in Karar. Beyond the slaves, the castes were less rigidly separated. Freed laborers were afforded only a handful of rights above slaves. Merchants and artisans were in similar higher rungs of society, and soldier nobles and sorcerers occupied the rung above them, being the landed aristocrats. The topmost rung of society consisted of the matriarchs, or scarlet brides, religious priestesses central to the Davic religion, see state religion. These matriarchs dictated almost every matter of society by interpreting the will of their god, in a break from most ancient cultures, one of these brides, the Rajmata, was the sovereign monarch of the empire, rather than a male member of the landed gentry. She was considered married to the Scarlet Maharaja while it slept in Karar, and the embodiment of its will in Mamjul and on Earth, empowered to make all theocratic, military, and societal decisions for the Covenant. We're next given a transcript from one of Galanis's projections into Karar, after ingesting the RL-023 drug. 
Galanis projects into the citadel of Karar, on one of the higher floors, which has been sequestered for Foundation use on the Rajmata's orders. Several other researchers and agents are in the room, along with multiple deva, and Galanis tells a few of the researchers to take a break, as they've been projecting for hours now. Galanis proceeds to focus on the throne room, projecting there instantly, where the Rajmata is seated. The Rajmata greets Galanis, with an honorific to indicate them as a respected scholar, and says that their people have been settling in well. Galanis thanks her for that, as she's been very accommodating, although the Rajmata replies that it hasn't been entirely out of altruism, saying that her people have been alone for three thousand years, so they crave new experiences. They want to learn more about humans, as they think of us as interesting creatures, very different from themselves. Galanis responds that they're sure that they can share some bits about humanity with the Deva, if they're willing to do the same. The Rajmata sighs, however, and says that she tires of this. Galanis understands, but they're not the final decision-maker for the Foundation. They need to know more about what actually happened during the First Occult War and how the Empire collapsed, so that they can avoid the same fate. The Rajmata pauses before standing, and tells Galanis to walk with her. As she steps down the stairs from her throne, her huge red robes flow out around her, embroidered with incredibly complex silk patterns and hundreds of embedded gemstones, cut to perfection. Many of her attendants rush out to object to her walking around, but she waves them off, and Galanis follows her, hustling to keep up with the much longer stride of the Rajmata. She tells Galanis that they ask more of her than they know, although Galanis doesn't understand why it's such a big trouble to answer. The Rajmata asks what do they look for in those fallen civilizations they seek to study, and what their methods of research are. Galanis responds that it can be many things, and primary sources from someone who was there at the time are the best, but aren't easy to find for ancient civilizations. Other than that, artifacts and text records are the next best thing, as stone tablets, writings, and carvings can give insight into how a people thought. The Rajmata says that therein lies the problem, and they step out into the main thoroughfare of Korar, which is bustling with activity. The slow thrumming drumbeats of the music are audible under the chatter and shouting of the street and the crowd parts reverently to allow the two to pass unimpeded, flanked by the Scarlet Brides. She says that this is a living city, brimming with soul and spirit in every nook and cranny, and it's overwhelming to humans, because they are rather disconnected from the natural order. It's okay though, as the Deva have their own limitations. They cannot touch the material plane without acting through intermediaries, their chosen people. Once this was the people of the jungle, but now they're gone, and the deva are isolated to their home, waiting for someone to find them. Returning to the point, Karar is a living, breathing city, but Mamjul is not, and there's a distinct lack of the physical sources that the Foundation is looking for. 
The Rajmata asks Galanis why they think that is, and Galanis assumes that after 3,000 years underwater, it's all been destroyed. The Rajmata replies that all of the material has been destroyed, but not by nature, but rather by man. Not just in Mamjul either, but in every city, including Karar. Once they had libraries filled with chronicles of their history, but now, as they were destroyed in Mamjul, so too have they been destroyed here. There are no longer any writings, anything concrete, that proves the Deva existed. This is the tragedy of the Deva, that they've been written out of time. Galanis asks how such a thing is even possible, but the Rajmata says that to answer that would be to explain what happened in the first war, and she doesn't trust them with that part of her people. Galanis says that the idea that there's no longer any record of her people, vibrant as it is, bothers them as a historian. The Rajmata replies that she didn't say there were no records, and tells Galanis to listen, to silence their mind and eliminate their thoughts. Galanis pauses as the chatter of the street melts away, leaving only the percussive, bone-shaking drums and chorus of the song that pervades the rest of the city. It is in a language unspoken for thousands of years, at once unfamiliar and comforting. The thousands of voices that form the chorus are in perfect harmony as they sing. Galanis remarks that it sounds familiar, and the Rajmata says that it's the Song of the Deva, a musical arrangement that chronicles their entire history, from their conjoining with her master, their god, to the fall of Mamjul and the breaking of the empire. It's hundreds of verses kept alive in their memories, although it was once written down long ago on a stone tablet in Mamjul that held each verse. Scholars and sorcerers from across the empire would undertake pilgrimages to Karar to seek the wisdom of the song. Now, however, there are only blank slates and dead men in Mamjul, and this is their shame, which is why she hesitates to share it with them. It is not just their history, but their religion, their creation, their laws, their culture. It is the Deva and sharing it with outsiders is the purest bearing of their soul as a people. Galanis understands, but the Rajmata says that the humans have something they desire as well, which is knowledge of the world since Mamjul fell. Galanis says that they would be willing to share that if the Deva returned the favor, although Galanis feels bad for asking, as the Rajmata has been incredibly generous already. The Rajmata says that Galanis is far too skilled for the suffering they are undergoing, and that they are a troubled soul. Galanis agrees, saying that there's a lot riding on this endeavor being successful, and on them being successful. The Rajmata says that regardless, the offer is suitable, but only for Galanis. The other personnel are intelligent, but they lack a certain level of wisdom and deftness that the song demands. She will not allow them to take and pervert their history, so she will translate the song and share its meanings, but only with Galanis. 
They will begin on Galanis' next arrival, but for now, Galanis needs to allow themselves some rest. Galanis tries to argue, but the Rajmata reaches down and places two long and slender fingers on Galanis' forehead. With a sudden violent rush, Galanis wakes up back in the psychotronics lab. Following this exchange, Galanis began sessions with the Rajmata to accurately construct a historical record of the Empire, concurrent with the fall of Amani Ram. The Rajmata offered both the religious framing of the Song of the Deva, as well as historical knowledge carried through oral tradition among the Deva in the absence of a formal written record. We're provided another memo from Galanis, giving their personal thoughts on the research progress. It reads, It's often said that the greatest wish a historian can have is to actually speak to someone from antiquity. Even the most primary of primary sources face issues. Translation problems, damaged or incomplete records, wholesale fiction being portrayed as fact to make long-dead kings look good. I think I'm the first historian to actually have that wish granted. Even the preserver in Amani Ram wasn't able to give Nussbaum much in terms of testimony. Its mind was too fragmented. Most of their knowledge came from the Fulad throne. But now, I have a living, if not breathing, record of the Davic Empire. The Rajmata and I sat down three times over the past week for her to explain the beginning verses of the song for me. It's amazing. It's incredibly complex. Imagine every symphony you've ever heard, overlaid with an unspeakably complex poem hundreds of verses long. It's a perfect representation of their culture. I mean, I literally can't even make some of the sounds necessary, since it's crafted for Deva vocal chords. The content is illuminating too. We're still on the beginning verses, unfortunately haven't been able to progress as quickly as I'd like. RLO23 aided projection has a pretty long cooldown time, about twice as long as the projection itself. And time passes differently in astral space, so it's hard to even tell whether the short conversation you had took 8 minutes or 8 hours. Every projection I've made has been followed by hours in recovery with the psychotronics guys pumping me full of electrolytes and fluids. But god, the hours I do spend in the city. Anyway, as I was saying, the beginning verses really just corroborate what we already knew. The creation myth mirrors that of Amani Ram quite closely. Some kind of war or conflict between a pantheon of gods that resulted in all of them grievously wounding the others, and causing all of them to fall to earth. Though there is something notable. The Deva reference four of these original gods, while the Mechanites only acknowledge the existence of three. It has to have some connection to the Abominate. I just know it. I'm unspeakably excited, but I know I need to be careful. The Rajmata seems… friendly, but I'm not taking chances. Getting my CRV checked every single day and limiting my projections. 
She knows more than she's letting on, I can tell that much. She hasn't explained why she greeted us into the city with, welcome back, or what the hell she meant when she said she'd only share it with me. I don't trust her, not yet, but I have to keep moving forward. I'm not letting this fall apart, not again. We're also given another excerpt from the culture briefing on the Deva about their state religion, which reads, The Davic Empire was a strict theocracy with a strong focus on animism. The Deva were considered nature spirits and immutable evidence of the validity of the Davic religion, but they were not the central objects of worship by citizens of the Empire. Instead, this role was occupied by an entity concept known by many names. The Slumbering God, the Scarlet Maharaja, the Khan of the Scarlet House, or simply the Scarlet. The consistencies are self-evident. All representations of the God are strong in nature, primal instinct, natural order, violent survival of the fittest. This entity, called the Scarlet here for simplicity's sake, was one of the gods cast down to the earth when a war split the Pantheon, landing in what is now the middle of the Indian Ocean, but at the time was a lush jungle subcontinent. It became the king and sworn god of the nature spirits, and eventually connected these spirits with the fledgling tribal humans living on the subcontinent by taking a human avatar and forming the Davic Covenant. This avatar is suggested to be an unspeakably powerful sorcerer, with abilities suggesting at least a Type 4 Class Blue entity, but is asleep, with their dreams forming the foundations for Karar's continued existence and the Empire's successful conquests. Put simply, the Scarlet is the cosmic representation of the concepts of brutal primality, and the Scarlet Maharaja is its prophet in human form. The religion of the Davic Empire was one of unwavering, zealous commitment to the Scarlet Maharaja, as their dreams allowed for the continuation of the Empire. The systematic manifestation of this were the Scarlet Brides, an imperial cult of handmaidens, attendants, and priestesses, though many were also male or androgynous, that were considered literally wedded to the Scarlet Maharaja. Their favored wife among the brides was the Rajmata, the queen ruling in their stead until the Maharaja awoke from his dream when the Deva had conquered the entirety of Asia for them. Hymns, magic, and sacrifices formed the basis of Davic worship. Hymns and associated dances occupied a central place in Davic culture and complex dances were a way to honor their god and use of the magic gifted to humans by the Scarlet was a holy act in and of itself, with sorcerers akin to religious preachers. Human sacrifice was a core part of Davic worship. It is estimated that over the thousand years of the Empire's existence, well over 40 million people were sacrificed, most with religious intent in specially constructed pits, and many being children. This was not seen as a cruelty by the Empire, as killing a human member of the Empire was believed to allow them to reincarnate as a Deva in Karar, 
a more fulfilling and eternal life. But the fact is that the Empire practiced a level of brutal human sacrifice and slavery on a scale completely unprecedented in ancient history. Over the following weeks, Galanis continued to sit in private sessions with the Rajmata, and through these sessions, several assumptions that the Nussbaum model had made regarding the para-historical element to the Bronze Age collapse were challenged and clarified. In one meeting in February of 2003, Galanis enters into Karar in a secluded antechamber of the Karar Citadel. Overhead, a starry, lightning-streaked sky is frozen in time, and the Rajmata stands nearby, draped in embroidered and bejeweled shawls. She greets Galanis, and says that she understands why they have to keep returning to the physical plane, as they are small and frail, and their physical needs must be met. Galanis says that that's not quite how they'd phrase it, but they appreciate the sentiment to which the Rajmata bows and apologizes. Moving on, they were discussing the Middle Ages of the Davic Covenant, but the Rajmata says that she worries her explanation does little good when she can just show Galanis instead. She proceeds to lock her hands and lowers her head, as the latent noises of Karar's hustle and bustle far below seem to melt away, leaving only the slight shifting of the leaves. Then, the Rajmata begins to sing, an incredibly deep and rich sound, with guttural lows and humming highs. As she sings, it sounds as though multiple voices from across the tree join in the chorus. This is the song of the Deva, but she says that now they must go a step farther. She begins to dance with the music graceful despite her large size and heavy dressage, drifting slowly in complex motions around Galanis. Outside of the tree's boughs, the cityscape has shifted dramatically, now looking out over a city on earth, with lush green farmland stretching into the jungle beyond the gigantic stone walls. It is a mirror image of Karar's triangular shape, and the open-air markets that make up the northern portion of the city are still present, but now they contain both humans and Deva, living and interacting side by side, and filling the streets. Huge multi-legged beasts of burden move throughout the city, mounted by both humans and Deva in elaborate robes and headdresses. Galanis asks if this is time travel, but the Rajmata says that the astral plane is a land of dreams, formed of the mind of the sleeping Scarlet, her master. This is her dream, and her memories, so she is bearing her soul to Galanis in friendship and trust. This is how Mamjul once was, and this is how she chooses to remember it, and the Deva, as the last Rajmata of the Devic Covenant. Galanis points out that there's not just humans down there, but also Deva, and the Rajmata says that Deva is simply a word, and in their tongue it would mean something akin to chosen people. The Scarlet named them this when she became their King of Kings. In turn, they named the tribes of the land this when they chose to become one with them under the covenant. The people, the spirits, 
the Empire, the Magic, all are Deva, all are children of the Scarlet, all are one. They're looking out at Mamjul at its peak, the jewel of an empire that spanned the length of Asia. Food, knowledge, history, art, magic, all passed through Mamjul, and from Mamjul through Karar. Galanis remarks that this doesn't look at all like a city at war, and the Rajmata says that it isn't. This is nearly 700 years before the sorcerers on the distant reaches of the Empire first informed them of the dreaded Golden Wave, the Mechanites. Galanis points out that this would have had to have been over a thousand years before she became queen, so how could this be her memory? The Rajmata now says that it isn't her memory. It is her dream, inspired by the soul of the previous Rajmatas, whom she carried with her then and carries even now. She hears, sees, and speaks to them. Galanis mentions that they had something similar in a money rom, a throne that would allow anyone to see in the eyes of a previous emperor of the Bumaro dynasty, but the Rajmata isn't impressed. She calls it artifice born out of a misguided obsession with improving oneself. All of Amani Ram's vast treasures were rubble and lost memories by the end of her reign, but then again, so were Mamjul's. Galanis asks what is so important about this day and this memory, and the Rajmata points to the far gate of the city, where a large party is assembled. Hundreds of horses and other unknown beasts packed with supplies and wagons wait beyond the gate, and several humans and deva are saying goodbye to others inside. Many more slaves are assembled alongside them, naked and bare in the sun. The Rajmata explains that this was the start of their first attempt at establishing a colony far beyond the bounds of the empire making another eye from whence their scarlet Maharaja might see and arise to take stock of the world that was theirs. Two thousand beasts and men, and twice as many slaves to carry the honor of the children of the Scarlet. The expedition had been in preparation for years, and consisted of leaders, great artisans, merchants, generals, sorcerers, nawabs, all sent out into the far emptiness of the east towards the endless sea. After they left the bounds of the empire, however, they don't hear from them again for 800 years. Galanis comes to a realization, recalling the Aegean tablets mentioning that the capital city of the Nalka, Black Aditum, was originally a slave colony, and that it must have started from this expedition. The Rajmata confirms this and says that they are witnessing the birth of the Deva's blood enemies. Among those two thousand slaves, one is a mere boy who will take the name Ion and lead an insurrection. He will become the scourge of the coast, High Lord of the Nalka, Yaldaboth's prophet. He is a slave, and his parents were slaves. His hatred for the Deva is inborn and will cause millions to perish. All is one, though not even iron will be enough to bring death to the Davic Empire. Galanis asks what will, 
but the Rajmata just says that that will be answered in due time, but for now they should just appreciate this, a snapshot of their greatest achievement. Galanis takes this to mean Mamjul, but the Rajmata corrects them, saying that it was peace. Afterwards, Galanis pops into Greaves' office aboard the FMS Phantom, asking him if they can just talk. Galanis looks at Greaves' desk, and remarks that they never really imagined him doing paperwork. Greaves asks if they thought that they'd just walk in and find him cleaning his rifle, and then says that if Galanis walked in ten minutes earlier, that's what they'd find. They laugh, and Galanis asks if he's gotten some time to look over the last projection log debrief they wrote, from last week. Greaves has, but then finds out that Galanis hasn't re-entered Karar since then, as the last meeting with the Rajmata shook them up a little. When Galanis was at Site 23, working on the Amani Ram initiative, they were the first person to look through the reports on the Fulad throne, and what it could do. The memory sharing that the Rajmata did reminds them of that a lot, and Galanis doesn't like it. They took a whole battery of cognitohazard tests, and nothing's been changed or altered, along with a CT and an MRI. Galanis also feels fine, and Desai said that there was nothing weird going on, and he refuses to go near the Rajmata because she creeps him out. Galanis is still worried, however, and then sighs and says that they and Greaves haven't been on the best of terms, but he's the person the O5s put in charge of making sure that Galanis doesn't go insane. Galanis wants Greaves to go along for the next projection, someone whose judgement won't be clouded. Greaves immediately agrees, although he senses that Galanis was expecting an argument, since Galanis said that they weren't on the best of terms. He smiles and says that while they might disagree on some things, they're both on the same side here. He's just as worried as Galanis is about things not going right, as there's a lot riding here for him too. Galanis didn't really consider that, and Greaves says that everything's a matter of perspective, and most people don't go beyond their own unless pushed. This is why his team is so involved, although Galanis says that at the same time, they're dudes with guns walking around and inspecting everything, while they're trying to manage over 200 researchers. They can't really do that if all of them feel like they're hostages. Greaves can understand that, he supposes, so he'll tell them to ease off a bit, which Galanis greatly appreciates, along with the fact that he's willing to project into Karar despite it not being in his wheelhouse. Greaves responds that he's spent most of his life holding or avoiding a gun, so this stuff with dreams and souls is just confusing. He's the one with the million dollar Kodak in his head though, so they have to get their money's worth. They chuckle, but Galanis feels bad for laughing, as that has to be uncomfortable. Greaves says that he knew what he signed up for when he joined the council's right hand and some of the guys have much worse alterations than this. He's been with the Foundation for long enough that he'd do a lot worse than having a couple pins in his head. They're protecting the world out here, so he does his part. Galanis can respect that, but they're more here just for the study of it, 
finding it all academically fascinating. Greaves says that he can respect that too, and after a brief pause, Galanis says that it was nice to clear the air, but they'll meet tomorrow for the projection, before departing and telling Greaves to call them Pandora instead of Doctor. We're next given a transcript taken from Greaves' head implant of their meeting with the Rajmata. He opens his eyes and finds himself standing outside of the entryway tunnel to the citadel of Karar, with Galanis and Desai. The Rajmata stands before them, supported by her handmaidens, their faces obscured by red veils. The Rajmata says that Galanis bringing guests was not what they agreed upon, but Galanis apologizes and says that this is too much for them to take in alone, and Desai and Greaves are good people. The Rajmata turns to Greaves and says that she remembers him, as his soul is a flame, and he's a soldier. She finds it interesting to have both a warrior and a scholar here, and in her land, their soldiers were often slaves, conscripted and made to fight with the promise of freedom. She asks if it is the same for Greaves, but he says that he chooses to fight, as there are things in this world worth protecting. In return, she says that he's a slave to his morals in lieu of a whip, and they're all slaves to something. The constant in life is obedient servitude, the variable is to whom. Greaves, however, says that with all due respect, he makes his own decisions, and people like him exist. The Rajmata acknowledges this, and says that they are a rarity, but she supposes that they'll see. It's time for them to see the truth, and she begins to bow her head and sing, with her handmaidens joining in the chorus. The song is slow and grand, deep sweeping notes and movements in an impossibly deep tone. Gradually, the surroundings of Karar melt away, the deva replaced with busy markets of humans and deva shoulder to shoulder. Galanis asks the Rajmata if they're not going to the top this time, and she says that no, they're not, as there is something they must understand before they continue forward blindly. Galanis had mentioned that the Foundation went to Amani Ram and spoke with a surviving automaton, although Galanis didn't mention that the automaton was formerly a human mechanite, in order to avoid potential tensions. The Rajmata asks what it told them about the gods, and Galanis says that it said there were three, Mekane, Scarlet, and an unnamed deity that the Nalka worshipped. The Rajmata replies that it lied to them, as there are four, and there have always been four corners to balance the world. The fourth has many names, the Abominate, or the Wretch, the Nalka called it the First Apostate in their infinite arrogance. Its true name cannot be spoken, but they accept its existence. The Mechanites did not until it was upon their borders, and by then, it was far too late. The Rajmata is limited in what she can say about it, but she will tell what she knows. She turns and enters the tunnel leading into the citadel, and the group walks through, the tunnel lit with small fires at the tips of darkened vines. The firelight reveals a complex carving engraved into the walls of the tunnel. 
The nearest portion is similar to the one first observed on the exterior of the citadel in Mamjul, consisting of a large glyph of a tree, with many figures now recognizable as Deva and humans, dancing and interacting around it, under the watchful eyes of a large, red-painted androgynous entity. This is the Scarlet, and the Rajmata says that she has already talked of how the Covenant came to be, with the hopes of one day arousing their sleeping god after they had delivered the world to him as a gift, and how the Red Maharaja was selected by the Scarlet as her champion after he fell from the heavens. Galanis says that the Scarlet is the primal concept of nature, and the Maharaja is its chosen prophet, but the Scarlet is just an incredibly powerful spirit, so where is it? The Rajmata looks at Galanis strangely, and says that the Scarlet is present all around them. Galanis understands that, but says that Amani Ram was constructed on the back of Meking, and made of her parts, physically. The Rajmata thinks that she understands, that Galanis wants to know if there's a place where they can speak to her master. She places a hand against the tree, and says that such a place exists, but the reliquary of her master must be protected. It is his dream that allows Karar to exist, and to open him to an outsider cannot be allowed, for both their sake as well as his. It would be like placing sand in a raging river, as the sand is obliterated and the river is tainted. But since they mentioned Amani Ram being built off the back of their goddess, she steps forward and points to a new portion of the carving, depicting a large, infinitely complex feminine entity partially buried under sand dunes, looked on by a man the fraction of her size. The group recognizes this as Mekane and the first Bumaro, and the Rajmata says that this was the pattern, with four gods, four prophets, four corners to the earth, four empires, and one war. Their gods are grand creatures, but they demand vessels for their power. Galanis moves to the other side of the tunnel, looking at a substantially less detailed carving, looking almost haphazard, possibly depicting some form of four-legged creature laying face down in a gargantuan grave or pit, surrounded by onlookers. Galanis asks if this is Ion, and the Rajmata says it's their best approximation, as they know very little about what exactly Ion discovered when he founded Black Aditum. He was a secretive, vindictive animal, and they understand that their god of flesh did not choose him as its avatar, not willingly. She doesn't know more than that, and these are renderings of rumors, of legends, of myths, so the truth may have been nothing like this. The group moves to the last of the four large carvings near the entrance, this one showing only a single smooth, featureless circle on the wood wall. The Rajmata says that this is the wretch, and what she can say is limited, as she is powerful but not a god, and there is binding magic that surpasses even theirs. Greaves says that it isn't unheard of, as there are anomalous contracts that can take away your ability to talk about something, but he can't imagine the kind of power it would take for something on this scale. The Rajmata also can't speak of who bound them and why, but what she can say is that the wretch was once a god, 
just the same as Mechane and the Sleeping Scarlet and whatever Ion found, but it was cast out long, long before the First War. It was thrown deep into the seas of the West, beyond the edge of the world, to drown forevermore. Desai asks what it did to deserve this, and the Rajmata just says that it was the first sin, although she doesn't know what that was. It was the introduction of disorder into a perfectly balanced universe, and the first vestiges of chaos. Galanis says that the Mechanites didn't recognize the legitimacy of the Abominate, or the other gods, rationalizing Mechane as the only legitimate deity, but the Davites recognize all of the deities. The Rajmata replies that they don't pledge their allegiance to the Sleeping Scarlet because they are innately supreme over their brethren. They do it because the Scarlet has protected them, uplifted them, provided for them, and they swear fealty because they choose to, as a covenant. As the other civilizations don't follow that belief, the first war was inevitable. The scene then changes, and the group is now standing on the battlements of the northern wall, seeing a gargantuan group assembled outside the gates. At least hundreds of thousands of both humans and Deva have gathered into camps, heavily armored with wood similar to the one the citadels formed from, and are supported by cavalry forces of thousands of four-legged beasts. Elaborately dressed sorcerers command each regiment as they begin to organize and march. In the far distance, over the thick tree line and expansive jungle, several thick plumes of smoke are visible rising into the sky. The Rajmata says that they will see the war as she saw it, and the scene changes rapidly. They see a desert battlefield, littered with the corpses of hundreds of Mechanites, their metal limbs torn from their bodies by Deva scouring the field. A large Davic city set alight by Mechanite napalm, burning to the ground in a raging inferno as women run screaming and carrying their children. The corpses of Deva and Mechanites being puppeteered across a strait by Nalka necromancers, forming a living body of bridges to allow their abominations to cross over to the crippled Deva force on the other side. Desai and Galanis are shocked by the carnage, but Greaves just says that this is war. The scenes continue shifting, showing Davic sorcerers raising vines to tear through Nalkan infantry, reducing them to bloody tatters of rotten flesh. Prisoners of war being massacred on altars as human sacrifices, along with mass graves and killing fields. Galanis tells the Rajmata to stop, and the scenes abruptly melt away, with the group finding themselves once again at the top of the tree. Desai and Galanis are holding their heads, but Greaves is not. The Rajmata asks if any of their wars have held a candle to this carnage, and Greaves says, maybe a couple, and that they have a saying, war is hell, which the Rajmata finds to be apt. She says that one must consider that it was all pointless, as while they waged this brutal, continent-spanning war, the wretch was coming. They had no idea that it had built up its forces in the far west, after dragging itself out of the sea. 
a horde that dwarfed their armies, led by an undying general prophet, the Black Star. And it was dragging itself across the face of Africa, bathed in blood and worship and chaos, to a money rom for vengeance. We're then given another culture briefing, this time on thaumaturgy and magic in the David Covenant, which reads, Without active practitioners of the Deva school of magic, it's difficult to make confident statements about its nature, especially in the framework of modern thaumaturgy which relies heavily on objective, metaphysical measurement. However, through Dr. Galanis' sessions with the Rajmata Vaslarasaraj Sharat and 141 interviews conducted on Deva by members of the Mamjul Karar Initiative, much information has been assembled. The first and perhaps most important point is that the magic the Deva used was not simple herbomancy, the magic of manipulating plant life. More broadly, the Deva practiced animancy in line with their philosophies that everything in the world had a soul, the only difference being whether it was one on the astral or the material plane. The Deva are self-identified spirits of nature which is why the vast majority of Deva magic focuses on plants and wildlife, but this is a choice, not a limitation. Several Deva have attested to more esoteric uses of their magic than conjuring aggressive, hostile plant life and the encouragement of agriculture. Mamjul was once host to a university of Kalia, scholars we would now liken to alchemists, chiefly concerned with encouraging the development of life to serve the Deva. The most visible examples of this are the exotic, many-legged beasts of burden observed in Karar and in Mamjul by Dr. Galanis, but this university also produced what we would now call bioweapons, highly aggressive viral infections that could cause both anomalous and mundane damage on organic tissue. These infections would be loaded into glass vessels and catapulted into besieged cities. As with most forms of animancy, the magic was in fact a contract of exchange between the spirit and the caster. Given the close bond that most spirits, the deva, and the casters, the humans they were bonded with, had, there was no incentive to outsmart and or betray the caster as with jinns. Instead, the price was paid through the ritual blood sacrifice of a third party, usually a slave or, later, prisoner of war. Magic was used in nearly every aspect of Covenant society, from the management and control of slaves, pheromone-based hypnotics, to construction and expansion, accelerated tree growth into the desired structures, to war, physical bonding of Deva to Covenant soldiers. As the deva supplying the spiritual power clearly still exist, there are no physical barriers preventing adequately trained thaumaturges from studying and using deva magic. Next, Greaves goes back to Karar for another meeting with the Rajmata, alongside Galanis, although Desai is off leading a dive into Mamjul in the hopes of finding anything useful down there. The Rajmata tells them that they will not find anything, as it is like the slates, wiped clean, but today their knowledge aligns. The Foundation's knowledge ends at the fall of Amani Ram, 
and Galanis explains that Preserver told them that the Deva and the Nalka made an agreement to lay siege to the city at once. They joined their armies to bring down their common enemy, and that the Abominate took advantage of the opportunity. The Rajmata, however, says that the Automaton was wrong, and her voice rises and grows heavier, saying that after everything she's told them about the history of her people and the Nalka, of Ion's first hatred for them, of the carnage they laid upon each other, of their attempts to deny the Covenant's fallen entry into the next life, what makes them think that the Nalka would ever fight alongside the Deva? They are not some capricious apostates who would betray their own for a chance at delivering a blow to the Golden Legion. Greaves steps in front of Galanis at this point and tells the Rajmata to back off, saying that Galanis couldn't have known, as they're just going off the timeline that Nussbaum created. The two glare at one another for several seconds before the Deva lowers her head and returns her voice to its usual sing-song tone. She apologizes to Glanis and says that these memories occupy a wounded space in her mind. They hurt to think of, much less display to others, and she has not felt such strong emotion in a very, very long time. Glanis recovers from the outburst, as Greaves asks if they're sure they're okay, and they tell the Rajmata that this is obviously a sensitive topic for her, understandably. The Rajmata says that she imagines that what the Automaton told them was what the Mechanites had written as the walls of Amani Ram were toppled. The maddened, desperate rationalizations of how the most advanced people in the world had fallen. Surely it could only be if their worst enemies had banded together despite the centuries of conflict and bitter hatred, for then they could paint themselves as martyrs. This is nothing more than revisionism, intended to make themselves noble in their own histories. Even with the walls of their greatest city sundered and the enemy at the gates, they expected their empire to live on. Greaves tells her to give them their side of the story then, and the Rajmata begins chanting again. The branches of the tree melt away, swirling into colors, forming a new scene. The image solidifies, and the group find themselves on a sand dune overlooking a huge war encampment. Tens of thousands of Davic soldiers and beasts of war gathered around bonfires and tents. In the distance, a money rom burns, its walls lie nearly cracked open, and the huge gates are sheared. Fires of all kinds and sizes dot the skyscrapers and minarets, and a thick plume of smoke hovers over the city. Another army, this one too far to make out, crowds the eastern gate. The Rajmata says that there was never any alliance between them and the Nalka, and she doesn't know why they came to Amani Ram that day, but she senses that it was for the same reason as her. They saw the signals, and she heard a whisper one of the sought-after signs from the Sleeping Scarlet of something he sees in his dream, a portent of things to come, and it told her that a money rom would not fall to her or to Ion, but to a face not seen in a thousand, thousand years, and it would fall on this night. She ordered the armies to march, and she expects that Ion received a similar portent 
through whatever unholy magic he practices of bone and fortune. She sighs, however, and says that it was already fallen when they arrived. Greaves remarks that she sounds sad about it, despite them being blood enemies. The Rajmata says that they were, but that was a conflict that they knew and understood, evenly matched. She says that the Mechanites were as much of a warlike blight to them as the Nalka, but she's not too proud to admit that Amani Ram was a center of learning, knowledge, and progress that rivaled even Mamjul. The raising of the city did not just put humans back a thousand years, it directly led to the fall of her own, and for that she must lament. Her scouts corroborated that there was a huge force of Nalka on the other side, and they assumed that Ion had devised some black magic that could take the city. They thought that the third army was the dead, raised by the Nalka. They knew that the treasures of Amani Ram would be a great boon to whoever sees them, and they couldn't allow the Nalka to seize them, so her generals decided to march in and loot after the gates fell. By morning, the walls fell and their armies moved in. They expected resistance, but this was chaos. The scene cuts to a rooftop in Amani Ram, showing the streets littered with corpses and fires burning in every direction. The Covenant soldiers and Deva are armed in curved swords and colorful clothing and are pushing against the surviving Mechanite troops. The Nalka necromancers move through the streets, raising dead civilians to join the fray. The Rajmata says that it was a massacre, and it's clear now why the three-prong army didn't try to occupy the city after bringing down the walls, letting the other armies tear each other apart. She's sure that Ion thought the exact same thing, that she had brought down the walls and was going to seize the city. They massacred each other, all while the Black Star watched. Galanis asks about the Black Star, and why the sound of its name sounds like that. The Rajmata explains that names have power, some more so than others. The Black Star was the wretch's chosen, just as Bumaro was with the metal, as Ion was with the flesh, and as her master was with the scarlet. He was to lead its armies and to destroy the world in its name. He was a man in flesh, but a monster in soul, able to shape reality like sand in his fingertips. His atrocities only began with the destruction of Amani Ram. The scene shifts once again to a distance away from the city, with half the Davic army still at the encampment. Suddenly, a low-pitched drone fills the air, growing steadily louder. The soldiers quickly get to their feet, pulling their weapons and looking around. The droning grows louder and louder, and just as it hits its crescendo, the towers and spires of Amani Ram vanish. This was Mekane's grace, something the Rajmata is unclear about. Galanis explains that it was a superweapon, the last-ditch efforts of the Mechanites, meant to transport the entire city away in the blink of an eye if it were ever besieged. Unfortunately, it didn't work how it was supposed to, 
and instead it moved the city into a pocket dimension and killed everyone and everything inside. The Rajmata bows her head and whispers a quick prayer to her master for the departed. She says that they can see now how the David Covenant were crippled, and they hobbled the long march home, disorganized and routed. But what weighed heaviest on her mind was not her lost soldiers or the fate of the city. It was that the wretch, hated enemy of the gods, demon of demons, had returned. And with the Mechanites reduced to dust, half her armies gone, and the black star carving a path westward, Mamjul and Karar were next. Before we end off this video, I want to take the time to read a short accompanying article that relates to the destruction of Amani Ram at the hands of the Abominate's army. It's titled The Black Star at Amani Ram, and rather than giving it its own short video, I think this is the most appropriate place to include it. And then there were three cities for the three old gods, scattered and sundered to the corners of the continent. In the sands of the desert, with sun glinting off the metal, lay the sister Mekane with the first of the great Roms on her back. The fruit and the trees bore witness to the signing of the pact between the sorcerers and the brother Scarlet, giving rise to Mamjul and Karar, resting in different realms on the land. And at the edge of all of Aditum curled the rotting corpse of the sister Yaldaboth, until the misstep of a wayward slave revealed her. And of course, there was the fourth, but of them we will not speak. Poem from a mural in a money rom, translated from Mechanite. The black star looked over his hordes, at the great walls of a money rom lying sundered and broken in the distance, and frowned. The sun cast a strange glow over the tableau. A money rom's golden towers shone even through the smoke of the shelling. The camp was set up some distance away from the walls proper. Soldiers massed around bonfires, drinking and cavorting, celebrating the shattering of the city's east gate, which had given way under the artillery some hours ago. The mostly human among them slept in preparation for the horrors tomorrow's incursion would bring. All stiffened and rose to their feet when their commander exited his tent. There was a stiff night wind coming in across the desert. It ruffled his hair and sifted through his beard. He took a seat on the sand dunes, his back to the battlefield. Hamani Ram's gates were broken, but the siege would not be over tonight. He looked up at his moon. The sun was still up and would be for some time, but the moon he looked at was not the same moon that would rise in several hours. It was an ugly thing, high in the sky, impossibly round and dark, like staring into a bottomless pit. Around it, a soft corona of red light, glowing through the smoke and haze drifting from the city walls. When he looked at it, he could hear his own blood pounding in his ears. 
He put his hands together, bowed his head, and prayed to it, thinking back to the first time he had seen it. He must have been young. Yes, young. Not a child, but not yet a proper man. He had lain with his woman, but he had not yet killed with his bare hands. He had been a farmer, or a fisherman perhaps. After so long, remembering his life before the moon was like remembering a dream from the night before. A handful of details mired in uncertainty and confusion. Picking apples in a fog-ridden field. He was young, and his father had also died young. He had never been taught of the proper way to address a god should he find himself unlucky enough to be in one's presence. As is the nature of such things, this was exactly where he found himself. Out doing the simple acts of man when the time escaped him. Caught up in the act at hand, he found the sun on the edge of setting and home nowhere in sight. Only unfamiliar, menacing surroundings. Fear gripped him and froze him. Naked in the eyes of the predators, he scrambled up a rock face and into a small cave overlooking a beach. The water was cool and still that night and the waves had long since retired. The sun fell into the abyss, and in his hole he felt sleep grasp at his frayed nerves. He pushed it, and pushed it, and by the time he realized it had overtaken him, he was already asleep. And he dreamt. He dreamt of things long past, of the first men capturing fire, and of things yet to come of a massive palace in a land unknown, of war on a scale yet unheard of, of massive hordes and steel armies clashing at the base of a mountain that would collapse, crushing them both, of himself hefting a black saber and bringing it crashing down to earth, sinking the world, of unchecked destruction and agony. As he dreamed, he smiled. He opened his eyes, and things were different. He was lying by the shore of the beach. The sun had vanished, and the night was dark. Not the soft blue darkness of moonlight, but of a colder, more watchful darkness. He looked out over the water. The reflection of the moon on the sea was warped and twisted, spreading every which way like a dying hand. And looking into the sky, it was. The twisted moon furled and unfurled, looking down at him, bathed in its red light. It invited him to join it. And so he slipped from the sand and waded into the warmth of the sea, into the reflection of the moon as it drew closer and closer. He felt it grasp him and slowly snake up his chest around his throat, it reached an arm out and whispered in his ear explanations of the scenes he had seen in his dreams, that he was destined to greatness, something far greater than the life of a fisherman, that the world needed a warrior, a champion, something to defend it, someone capable of killing in the name of, but that it could offer him things, safety, power, control, 
He thought of how just a few minutes ago the darkness had frightened him, assured him of his own demise. He thought of humanity, a fledgling species scattered across the world to far east where the sun rose. He thought of the legends he'd been told as a boy, of heroes that rose to the call when no one else would, those brave few who received the opportunity and shaped the world in their image, kings and conquerors. In the deafening silence, all he could hear was the steady rhythm of the dark water lapping against the shore, glowing in the red light. Overhead, the black orb seemed ever closer, approaching him curiously, the shimmering tentacles groping the edges of his being. He whispered out a soft answer, and the moon smiled. It withdrew for a moment, and in that moment he suddenly heard something else, something fast, violent, angry, rushing through the water, something underneath him. Something wrapped around his ankle and pulled him into the depths. The dark serenity flipped into violence. He thrashed, blind like a sick dog, throwing his arms in every direction as he was shaken back and forth. His lungs screamed and the water poured into his mouth, nose, ears. His mind cleared, and as he fought against the current, he became aware of a voice somewhere deep inside his mind. Yes, struggle, it said. Struggle is the natural form of creation. And so he struggled, beating his fists against whatever was gripping his ankle. This is the chaos of the primordial womb. You are not thinking of morals, or principles, or mighty laws. He felt his fingers scrape against something hard and solid, a scale perhaps. He wrapped his fingers around the edge. They are all extraneous. There is only the inescapable cycle of violent struggle. This is how we all come into the world. This is what the world is. He pulled, his muscles screaming and dying. He pulled as what remained of his vision began to blacken and fade. He pulled until it gave way with a disgusting pop, and the grip slackened. Survival is the only law. He felt himself float up, back to the surface. His head broached the water, and he breathed in deeply. The water was as impassive as ever, no sign of a life or death struggle under it. Look, child, strike the deal in blood. Something else was floating in the water before him, the red light glinting off its wetness. It was no creature he had ever seen, a misshapen mass of flesh only slightly larger than his torso. It gurgled and aimlessly waved two vestigial limbs at him. Its eyes glinted in the moonlight. He felt a heaviness in his hand, a short, black dagger, glass-like. He raised the knife and looked into the thing's eyes. Kill it. Take your place in the cycle of violence. Take your birthright. The deal was struck.
He woke again, this time returned to his cave. The sun was rising over the horizon, spreading its light into his surroundings. And he saw, in the back of the hollow, a burned-out fire and a short black dagger cooling in the suit. It sung to him, and in the song a fable could be heard. One of a rising sun and a falling moon, and of the moon's rise as the sun ran past the horizon. He put his hand around the hilt, and felt a presence high in the sky, whispering one thing. Welcome, Black Star. Hundreds of years later, he sat on the sand dune with his complement of guards at a respectable distance. He prayed to the moon for guidance, for assurance that all this butchery was what he was meant to do with the army and the power given to him. The moon stared back at him impassively, daring him to show weakness and fear again. None came. The black star's eyes narrowed and his gaze hardened. He stood, turning his back against the emptiness of the desert. On the horizon, a money rom burned. The Mechanite Empire would fall and the Black Star would be the one to bring it to its knees. And before the old gods fought their war and broke the sky, and laid the foundations for the next civilizations of the earth, there were once four. Four gods and their four cities. But of the fourth was committed an act of heresy, in raw defiance of the oldest laws that underpin our world. And as the world came apart, his brethren acted. They cast out their fourth and labeled him as unclean, the abominate, the wretch, the first apostate. He fell from the heavens and landed deep in the waters of the west, drowning while the war in the heavens raged on unabated. A previous verse of the poem, reconstructed from a shattered ceramic mural. There's certainly a lot of blood and tragedy in the Davites' past, but so too was that true for the Mechanites, and as we've learned, these ancient peoples were partly the architects of their own misery. The Rajmata hasn't told the entire story yet, and there's definitely things that she's not telling the team, but we also can't imagine that they're content to just sit in their astral kingdom for all eternity. However, if the Abominant is as powerful and hateful as the Foundation's been told, they're surely going to want the enemy of their enemy to be their friend. We'll find out more in part four. <laughs>